Hello, I'm James Hurst. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. How real is the risk of a second war in Eastern Europe right now? NATO says it is ready to intervene amid growing tensions in the Balkans. On one side you have democratic state of Kosovo, on the other side you have illegal structures of Serbia. When did it happen and where did it happen when Serbian forces crossed that, we would say, administrative line? In the Ukraine war, Russia has now suffered two significant and slightly mysterious strikes on its military bases in Crimea. Devastating in terms of numbers of aircraft destroyed, destruction of ammunition and maintenance facilities, but we don't really know for sure, at least publicly, how it was done. America's former top general in Europe will give us his assessment of whether the balance is shifting in the war. And the remarkable story of how hundreds of Allied prisoners in Nagasaki survived the atomic bomb blast just one mile away. They describe you know, tremendous mushroom clouds, uh, intense heat waves being knocked off their feet. The whole prison camp had just been flattened. It was actually a miracle that only eight prisoners were killed. We already have one war raging in Eastern Europe. Of course, we do not want another. But in the shadow of Ukraine and Russia's battles, tensions between Serbia and Kosovo have been escalating, now so high that NATO says it is ready to step in. Should stability be jeopardised, K4 stands ready to intervene and will take any measures that is necessary to ensure a safe and secure environment and freedom of movement for all the people of uh, Kosovo. That UN-backed K4 peacekeeping mission currently includes around 40 British personnel in Kosovo, while in the UK a battalion from First Fusiliers are a strategic reserve who could be moved at short notice. The NATO Secretary-General Jens Stoltenberg met the Serbian President and Kosovan Prime Minister on Wednesday, ahead of face-to-face crisis talks between the rival leaders in Brussels. Serbia has never recognised Kosovo's independence and says ethnic Serbs there are facing discrimination. Kosovo claims Serbia is planning an attack. So more than 20 years since the Kosovo War, how serious is the risk of a return to conflict? Professor of Defence Studies Michael Clark is with us once again, and the founder of the Balkan Free Media Initiative, Antoinette Nikolova, joins us from Bulgaria. Uh, thank you both. Antoinette, just explain briefly the recent background to this, because in the face of it, these tensions growing over the last few months start with a row about driving licences and number plates. Exactly. Tensions escalated uh, at the beginning of this month because of uh, Kosovo's planned implementation of a new law, making it mandatory for everyone, including Serbs living in Kosovo, to have uh, Kosovo ID cars and license plates. That uh, will trigger the riots. Uh, uh, all the disinformation campaign actually was uh, played by Russian. And after international pressure, the implementation was postponed by the Kosovo authorities till fill September. So let's see what is going going to happen then after first of September. Michael, given what Antoinette mentions there, the, the the riots, the standoffs, how close do you think Serbia and Kosovo are to physical conflict right now? 
Well, uh, closer than they were a little while ago. I, I mean, they've dialed down tensions in the past. Every time there's, a, there's tension, and there has been constantly since uh, 2008 when Kosovo declared its independence, they've always managed to dial it down and never really to come to anything. Just before the Russian invasion, uh, Alexander Vucic, the Serbian president, was rumoured to be thinking about a military move against Kosovo, which seemed to have been postponed by the war. And that tension has continued to increase, but it certainly has quite a lot to do with what's happening in Ukraine. Antoinette, for the people in northern Kosovo, how much are they feeling the effects of this political standoff in their daily lives at the moment? Look, uh, Mr Vucic created a scenario for open conflict in Kosovo. There are fears, not only in Kosovo, that Russia is using Serbia to destabilize the Balkans and shift at least some attention from its war in Ukraine. Russian officials and their propaganda, which are very active in Serbia, not since yesterday, they were very quick to join the pro-Serbian narrative, claiming the Serb minority in Kosovo is being compressed and subjected to violence uh, by majority ethnic Albanians, which are something like 90% of the population. And it's the same narrative used as an excuse by Moscow for invading uh, Ukraine. The Serbian president, President Vucic, says, look, where is the evidence that we are planning an attack. This is simply uh, propaganda by Kosovo. In my knowledge, he visited um, uh, military structure, a commands, uh, which is a symbol, you know, uh, the symbols are very important in the Balkans. And not only in the Balkans, but especially in the Balkans. Also, before leaving to Brussels yesterday, the day before, he visited the Chinese uh, ambassador. He spoke to the Russian ambassador. So I'm worried a little bit about this. <laughs> and I'm worried what is going to happen after 1st of September. Michael, the NATO Secretary General says NATO stands ready to intervene to preserve stability. What do you think would be the sort of trigger for K4 to, to actually act in this situation? Well, one sort of trigger would be quite easy to establish. In other words, if there were, a, if there were some sort of deal uh, which may be hammered out at NATO and the EU this week, it is possible that they'd say, OK, well, we need K4 to oversee the implementation of certain things, deals on uh, legal recognition issues, number plates and so on, and that we'll have K4 as a, an arbiter uh, to make sure that the deals, the terms of the deal is, is, are observed. But a much more difficult thing would be if there started to be a move by Serbia against Kosovo, K4 would find itself, along with the Kosovan forces, effectively trying to defend Kosovo, or if it didn't, would be standing aside while much larger Serbian forces directed from Belgrade might move in. And that would be very difficult indeed, where a peacekeeping force simply has no peace to keep and stands idly by while things happen that the rest of Europe disapproves. That would be very difficult indeed if that worked out. 3,700 troops, we know they have reserves on standby, including that battalion of First Fusiliers, in the UK, how likely do you think it is we could could see more British troops sent to Kosovo in the near future? 
Well, that's possible because the Western Balkans is in a very tense state because of the Ukrainian war and because most Western Balkan states, most of the old former Yugoslavian states, apart from Croatia and Slovenia, are not in the EU and have been kept waiting for 20 years. Um, and Russia is playing games with those states. And so the, the need for NATO... Uh, to be seen to be resolute in the Western Balkans is all part of the same need for NATO to be seen resolute over the Ukrainian war. Um, and so this is a very dangerous situation, which is a, it's a side issue to Ukraine. But it, it's, as somebody said uh, in the press this week, I mean, NATO needs this one like a hole in the head. Antoinette, the NATO K4 mission is UN-backed, UN-mandated. But if it, if it were to try to get involved to restore some kind of stability that could get politically really quite difficult couldn't it because as you say Russia Russia would not like that yes that's why I'm sure Vucic uh, he's playing double game it was so obvious yesterday after the meeting with the Secretary General of NATO Jan Stoltenberg speaking in Serbia Vucic is uh, much uh, more balic, I mean, his public in Serbia that are widely pro-Russian. Talking in English, speaking in English at the doorstep, he's mild, he's moderate. But in a certain point, he has to decide. Serbia is pressing to go ahead with negotiation for the membership of the European Union. So... On the international level, Vucic will try to play uh, moderate, but he will have strong, strong pressure from Russia. Antoinette, thank you very much indeed. Antoinette Nikolova from the Balkan Free Media Initiative. This is Sidrev. For the second week in a row, Russia has suffered a significant hit to its military infrastructure in the Ukraine war. Explosions ripped through an arms depot in Crimea a week after Russian warplanes were destroyed at an airbase on the Crimean coast. Uh, Michael Clark, how much of a hit have these two uh, events made to Russia's military capability in Ukraine? Uh, well, they certainly haven't helped. I mean, the hit has been more psychological than anything else. I mean, the Russians lost uh, at least nine aircraft, it seems, on the hit on the Saki airbase in Crimea, which is down in the southwest of Crimea. And then uh, an ammunition dump at uh, Miskoye, um, which is much deeper into the centre of Crimea. Um, and I think the shock that Crimea is not a haven that is that is part of the war zone now is pretty considerable. And there are lots of reports of roads jammed uh, as tourists and, and Russians in Crimea were trying to get out back to Russia across the Kirsch Bridge, which is now kind of a big target. That's the bridge that links Crimea to uh, to Russia proper in the east of Crimea. Um, so these these strikes actually have had a big effect. And they're a new threshold because this is the um, an example of Kiev now, as it were, extending the war to Russian-occupied Crimea, not just the areas that the Russians have taken since uh, February this year, but the, the areas that they took in 2014 and have been using as a... Crimea has been a very important military base to them, both for sea, air and land operations. So this is pretty important. Yeah, and it, it, it sort of raises some some questions about what the Ukrainians regard as victory 
in this war, nearly six months in. The former commanding general of the US Army in Europe, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, thinks the balance of power in this war has moved. I think right now, James, while there's still a lot of hard fighting still ahead, uh, Ukraine has seized the momentum. Uh, Russia is exhausted. Their logistics system specifically is exhausted. And I can feel that the momentum has shifted. Uh, The idea that Russian victory is inevitable has been, I think, totally debunked. Uh, And in fact, I'd say the opposite, that Russian defeat is actually inevitable. Ukraine is getting a little bit stronger each day, a little bit better each day, while Russia's manpower situation and logistics situation, it's a little worse each day. We talk about, you talk about victory and defeat. They're not necessarily binary, though, are they? You know, most Ukrainians would see victory as only returning to the land they had before Crimea was invaded. Yeah, and... I think President Zelensky has said that, that the war started in Crimea and it's going to end in Crimea. And and I think President Zelensky is right that uh, anything short of that would be um, a a huge mistake because the Russians then will just, they'll see that we're not, we don't have the resolve. Now, I believe that Russian forces can be pushed back to the 23 February line by the end of this year, getting Crimea And the part of Donbass that was under Russian control since 2014, that's going to take uh, more time and probably actually ends up being more of a uh, negotiated type uh, arrangement in the next over the next couple of years. In Crimea, we've seen two big hits that Russia have taken this week, an arms depot, uh, an ammunition dump, uh, a week ago, an airbase. How much impact in the big picture, do you think that is going to have on Russia's military capability in the south of Ukraine? This is such a fascinating aspect of this war. Uh, first of all, the the uh, famous Black Sea Fleet, the Russian Black Sea Fleet, is hiding on the other side of Crimea right now from a Ukrainian Navy that doesn't exist. Uh, the second thing that was fa- is fascinating is uh, people, we're all still get, trying to figure out how in the heck did they hit this uh, Saki airfield there in Crimea last week. I mean, devastating hit in terms of numbers of aircraft destroyed, destruction of ammunition and maintenance facilities. Um, But we don't really know for sure, at least publicly, how it was done. So how do you Uh, think it was done? I think it was done probably by um, a a Ukrainian uh, manufactured weapon of some sort. And, And Ukrainians... Of course, you know, they used to be the heart of the defense industry in the Soviet Union. So they have the technology, to be the, the know-how to do stuff. And it seems to me that they've MacGyvered some sort of way to uh, get a uh, get rockets to be able to go that far. Um, but it's looking increasingly like what happened at this other ammunition point in uh, northern Crimea was done by special forces direct action or... Um, partisans or something like that. So that's the beauty of this. The Russians are seeing that how vulnerable they are. They cannot even protect their airfields in their rear area. An advisor to President Zelensky has told The Guardian they are trying to create chaos by targeting Russian supply lines and Russian supplies. Are we witnessing a shift in 
strategy or are we just seeing more results of something that's been been going on for some time? I think uh, the latter, uh, that this is, uh, the, the Ukrainians are getting increased capability to be able to strike deeper in terms of long range precision fires, but also their special forces, I think, continue to get better. But I think this is not just, uh, these are not just isolated lucky strikes. This is part of an effort that's necessary to prepare the con- to set the conditions before Ukraine can launch a substantial counteroffensive, which I anticipate it will do sometime in the next month or two. I, but I don't know exactly that. The conditions to do such a thing would have to include total disruption or destruction of Russian artillery and rockets and logistics. Just above Crimea, just to the north, we've seen Herson reports that Russian soldiers are effectively cut off because of the uh, damage to bridges, that they've moved their command to the other side of the Dnipro River. Is Ukraine on track to take back Herson, do you think? Uh, I think that this is absolutely going to happen. Uh, I'm reluctant to predict how long it'll take, but the Russians are in a, are in a difficult situation right there. And I think the Ukrainians are, um, it appears to me, I don't know this, but it appears to me that they're they're taking their time on this a little bit because, of course, there are thousands of Ukrainian civilians that live inside Kherson as well. And so they're not going to do to Kherson what the Russians did to Mariupol. Um, so it's going to be a different sort of a timeline. Caught in some of that fighting, that bombardment and shelling in the south is the Zaporizhia nuclear plant. Uh, how concerned are you that what is happening, the damage that's already been sustained at the plant, could, could turn into a nuclear disaster? Well, of course, it, it could. I, I think that this is... Uh, not likely. What the the Russians want to do, of course, is to be able to divert the electricity from that nuclear power plant to Crimea. Uh, I think that the whole world needs to be uh, putting pressure on on Russia, however, to allow uh, observers from the International Atomic Energy Energy Agency to come in there and make sure that it's being properly maintained. The Russians have so far resisted. Um, I don't know how Germany, France, Italy, um, as well as even China, cannot be raising holy hell uh, with the uh, the Russian government to allow observers to come in there. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of Germans today, alive today, that are still carrying the effects of the Chernobyl incident, the fallout from Chernobyl. So um, I, I think it's going to take international pressure on the Kremlin from all corners because this can have a global implication if there's an accident. Retired U.S. Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. Uh, Michael Clark, let's just pick up on what's happened at Zaporizhia. You've got both sides claiming the other is responsible for the hits on this nuclear plant. Uh, Both sides deny responsibility. It, It seems like madness for either side, frankly, for Russia, which holds the site, Ukraine being all around it, it seems like madness for either side to shell there. Do we have any evidence as to who is actually responsible? Well, I, I mean, I've, I know of a, a lot of evidence, and I've seen a fair bit of it, that the Russians have used the site as a depot. So they've brought a lot of trucks in, they've got a lot of uh, armaments there. I mean, that's entirely provable from external sources. 
um, and you know, the Ukrainians with more precise weapons are trying to hit some of those things. Whether the Russians have been firing missiles from the site outwards, I haven't. They are certainly accused of doing that, and they're certainly capable of doing it. I haven't seen direct evidence of that myself. But the site has undoubtedly been turned into a military objective. Now, for the for the Ukrainians, what are they going to do about that? If they at, at least if they can keep up the pressure on the site, they are playing with fire. But equally, if they just ignore it and allow the site, which is a very big site, it's one of the Europe's biggest nuclear plants. If that if they allow that to become some sort of safe haven for ammunition stores and for uh, missiles uh, strikes being outward missile strikes, then they're giving up a big strategic objective. If the Russians meant what they say, then they would allow international inspectors, inspectors to come in. And Ben Hodges is quite right. If there is one issue that the world ought to unite on, even Russia's friends, it is actually, um, uh, as we're de-stressing the situation around Zaporizhia at the moment because it's becoming part of what could be a real international catastrophe. It, it isn't that there will be a nuclear explosion, but that, that if there are hits on nuclear facilities, it will leak in the way that Chernobyl leaked. Now, this week, the 77th anniversary of VJ Day has been marked. The surrender of Japan ending World War II came just days after the world's only use of nuclear weapons in war, first at Hiroshima, then Nagasaki, described in this broadcast from the US National Archives. Then exactly at 11 o'clock, two superfortresses appeared over the city from the northeasterly direction. At 11.02 o'clock, the second plane dropped an object, its descent taking about 40 seconds. Then came a blinding flash, followed by an explosion and a blaze. The destruction was the greatest ever wrought by man. Little more than a mile from the epicentre of that destruction were hundreds of Allied troops being held in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. Remarkably, almost all of them survived. John Willis has been piecing together their stories from notes, diaries and interviews, and he's been telling Kate Chabot about his book, Nagasaki, The Forgotten Prisoners. I came across the story because the son of um, one of the prisoners in Nagasaki was a friend of mine who I worked with, and he told me about his dad. Ron was a sort of archetypal uh, Yorkshireman from a large family near Harrogate. I think he had the sort of intellectual and physical capability to survive, although survival was also a matter of luck to a certain extent. And I was just absolutely staggered that there'd been Allied prisoners uh, in Nagasaki when we, the Allies, dropped the atomic bomb uh, on the city. And he's just one of the prisoners of war who you feature in what's described as one of the greatest survival stories of the Second World War. Why do you regard it as such? because it just went on for so long. They had endured so much before the bomb was dropped at Nagasaki. They'd been captured at gunpoint. They'd seen their friends die at the hands of the Japanese in prison camps. Many had worked on the notorious Thai Burma Railway, the bridge on the River Kwai. And then they were taken to Japan in hell ships, which were torpedoed by the Allies. Many thousands died in that process. And they finally then had to survive the, the most powerful bomb ever dropped by man. They describe you know, tremendous mushroom clouds, bright lights like thousands of searchlights, bright colours, uh, intense heat waves being knocked off their feet. Uh, I think just that moment was extraordinary. And, um, and when Ron Breyer, who we mentioned earlier from Harrogate, 
woke up having been knocked unconscious by the force of the bomb, he found that the whole prison camp had just been flattened. The guardhouse, the cookhouse, the barracks, everything had just been flattened. And all he saw were lots of prisoners, lots of guards and local Japanese just running by slightly wildly. When the atomic bomb dropped, what was the situation in the camps and what effect did it have? It was actually a miracle that only eight prisoners were killed. And it was because everyone inside a mile radius of the detonation point of the bomb died. And they were just outside that. They were about 100 yards outside it. And secondly, the prisoners, a lot of them were inside. They were in bomb shelters or in buildings. And on the same distance away from where the bomb was dropped, there were many Japanese who were out in the streets who died. So it was an amazing uh, miracle. It was the kind of last slice of luck that so many of, of them had. And there was one, only one British prisoner and seven uh, Dutch prisoners died. But they spent over a week as makeshift crematorium workers under the uh, control of the Japanese military, uh, burning the bodies of, of those who died. So I think that was the image that lived with them for longest. And you make the point that the freedom of those POWs came at the costs of tens of thousands of civilian lives with the dropping of the atomic bomb. How do you think those veterans made sense of what they witnessed and lived through? I think they just didn't understand it at the time. You know, they'd never heard of the atomic bomb. They'd been completely cut off from information. So they didn't really understand the progress of the war or any debate about nuclear weapons. They just really didn't understand it to begin with. I think that as they grew to realise what had happened, most of them were grateful because I think it saved their lives. They felt absolutely sure that if the war had gone on, that anyone in Japanese hands at the time that the Allies might invade the mainland of Japan would have been killed. So they felt that they didn't have very long to live if there was an invasion. So the bomb saved their lives. I think that some of them had very mixed feelings too, that they knew it had saved their lives but knew that it unleashed some terrible horror and probably could never forget the scenes that they witnessed in Nagasaki after the bomb. So I think it was quite quite complex for them. And you wrote this book during lockdown. It must have given you a lot of time to reflect. Has it changed any of the views you previously had about the Second World War, whether it be about bravery, survival or the brutality of war? I think that I started thinking about the book because my two previous books had been about the Battle of Britain. And I started to think about what courage was that the young men who flew Spitfires and Hurricanes were quite rightly hailed as great heroes. And these men, the same sort of age, had been forgotten, or that's how they saw things. And so I started to ponder on what the nature of courage was and realised that courage isn't always being on the front foot. I think I learned a lot, a lot about comradeship, how their survival tool was their mates, particularly the Australians, but the British too, that they all had groups of usually two or three mates. And if one was sick, then the one who was fit would feed them and the other way round. So they looked after each other. And these friendships were incredibly deep and powerful and, and enduring. I, I think it's a testament to the power of, of comradeship. Perhaps the third one from the life in the camps was that 
there was a surprising amount of displacement activity, you might call it, theatrical performances, drawing in Singapore, they set up a university, but you realise that keeping your mind active, stop thinking about, was one way of surviving. So I think I learned a lot about survival. John Willis, author of Nagasaki, The Forgotten Prisoners, he was talking there to Kate Chabot. Michael Clark, it is a remarkable story, the idea that hundreds of people could survive a nuclear weapon detonation little more than a mile away. Uh, as I said at the start, this is the only time that nuclear weapons have been used in war. But yet here we are in 2022 with the UN warning of a possible nuclear disaster from a damaged power plant in Ukraine. It, it, it makes you question whether we've really learned all the lessons, I guess. Yes. Uh, you know, survival in war is uh, a matter of luck. I mean, remember that bomb that dropped on Nagasaki was originally intended for Kokura. And because there was cloud over Kokura, they went to the secondary target of Nagasaki. And the, the Allies dropped two bombs because they only had two bombs. If they've had three, they would have dropped three. If they had four, they would have dropped four until the Japanese unconditionally surrendered. The fact is they, they dropped the two that they had. They didn't know if they would work. And, and as it happened, they both did. It's all a matter of luck. And I think it reminds us that war is a very random process. Death in war, injury in war is extremely random. The gods of war don't care very much who dies or how they die, but the gods of war always do exact their price. Michael, thank you, Professor Michael Clark, And thank you to all of our guests. We are back with another BFBS sit rep next Thursday. As always, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at BFBS SITREP. And you can also catch up with past programmes on the website. That's bfbs.com slash SITREP, where you can find links to subscribe to the podcast. For now, though, from me, James Hurst, thanks for listening and goodbye. (laughs) 